Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 75, The Northern Showdown. Having completed our little communist interlude last week, it's back to the nationalists. For the KMT, I left off with the resignation of Chiang Kai-shek from his positions of authority in the KMT. This was not a great time for Chiang to skip off back home, at least for the KMT. The party was divided as to leadership, and while the left faction had been defeated, Chiang was kind of the link holding the right together. Now, both wings found themselves broken apart and trying to muddle their way through to an accommodation. They would need to act fast, as soon Chuan Feng's troops by August 26, 1927 had counterattacked and were back across the Yangtze River and just 15 miles away from Nanjing. On top of that, the new capital's connection to Shanghai was cut off. The two nationalist commanders in the area were He Yingqin, who had been one of Chang's most capable subordinates in the campaign so far, but had failed to rise to his boss's defense when plots to remove him had developed. The other was Li Zongren, the Guangxi warlord who had tipped off Chang earlier in the year about Baroden and the communists' intention to oust him. Li disliked Chang and was apprehensive about his personal power and also had leadership ambitions of his own, but saw the Generalissimo as a useful rallying figure and so supported him at critical moments and also undermined him after he served those uses. Whatever their relations to Chang had been, they were on their own in dealing with the counteroffensive coming from the north. The decisive battle took place around the city of Longtan, where tens of thousands of Sun's troops poured across the river. Li managed to hold them at bay long enough for He to advance from Shanghai and surround Sun. Caught in a pincer and stuck on the wrong side of the river, Sun beat a hasty flight back to Shandong province. 30,000 of his troops, however, were not so lucky and surrendered on August 31st. Soon at this point had gone from being one of the biggest warlords in China to a vassal of Zheng Zhuolin to finally a beaten has-been. He would briefly find refuge with Zhang and still support him militarily, but would eventually drift to Port Arthur in Japanese territory and seek out a retirement. He would be shot dead on the street in 1935 by a daughter of an old rival he had had executed back in the day. There must have been some euphoria in the air, as the KMT had delivered a crushing blow to one of their major remaining enemies. But now, with the warlords on the back foot again and being steadily driven north, the party decided to take advantage of the good feeling and try to end the civil war within the party's factions. KMT bigwigs assembled in Nanjing to try and hash out a new path forward that would give the participants of the Wuhan government, Chang's military guys, and the Shanghai conservatives all a piece of the party's success. The first step was to abolish the committees that the rival factions had spawned that each claimed the right to set party policy and make appointments within the Kuomintang. Instead, a new, unified one would be temporarily formed with each faction getting a say, with the intent of having a formal party congress on the new year to get the greater KMT in one place to hash out an agreed-upon platform and internal organization to move forward into the future. You would think that this was kind of a golden opportunity for unity and empowering the party while Chang was out of sight, if not out of mind, right? Well, nope. A lot of Chang's guys were hesitant to commit to anything without getting his say-so, and Chang was still enjoying the retirement life in the hilly countryside south of Shanghai. Wang Jingwei got in a huff that the Wuhan government's edicts weren't being given fair credence, and that the temporary committee wasn't allowed under party rules. I'm not really sure what he was going there with these protests, given that his attempts at forcing the party to follow his directions hadn't really gone very well so far. His demands were rejected, and he left Nanjing in mid-September to head down south, eventually winding back in Guangzhou, the old party home base. 
Meanwhile, the Wuhan element of the party made one last suicidal move by dropping out of negotiations and declaring that the Nanjing government was to be dismantled. The militarists decided enough was enough, and in late October 1927 through mid-November, launched an expedition towards Wuhan that dismantled what remained of the forces still loyal to the left KMT. It was a clear victory for the conservatives, and signaled that the left KMT was no longer a faction that even had to be reconciled. By the end of October, Wang had reached Guangzhou and started marshalling whatever troops in the area would answer to him. If he was actually serious about putting together a military opposition, I don't know. It just didn't seem likely. He did call for a congress in Guangzhou under his auspices, which you might not be surprised to learn, everybody ignored, especially as his former base of support in the left wing of the party was in the midst of being torn down. It was on November 10th when Cheng showed back up in Shanghai and sent Wang a conciliatory message. He wanted to be friends again. Cheng called for a preliminary conference to a greater party congress in Shanghai, and unlike Wang's attempt, everybody who was still in a leadership position showed up or was at least represented. The conference got off to a stormy start, however, as before leaving Guangzhou, Wang managed to depose the local military commanders and replace them with his own men. Now, I think this is actually kind of neat that Wang managed to pull this off, but ultimately it royally angered many of the militarists at the conference. Remember, the military arm had been through a lot together at this point, and while they weren't above a little skullduggery among friends, there was a network between them that was to be respected. The politician Wang had just messed with that network, and this all perfectly suited Cheng. Without him, the party was more divided than ever, and commanders were jockeying against each other. It took several more months than he had expected, but the KMT leadership was coming around to the idea that maybe Cheng was kind of indispensable after all. Keep in mind that the ongoing war with the Northern Warlords, the Communist Fall Uprisings, and the suppression of the Wuhan government were all going on pretty much simultaneously. Things were going to hell pretty fast, and they had to get this all sorted out. On December 10th, Wang endured having to formally ask Cheng to come back as the commander of the army. Chang accepted and set the start of the official Congress for the first two weeks of January. Even better again for him, the very next day news arrived that there was that communist uprising in Guangzhou. Chang was back in the Cracking Skulls business, and business was booming. If there is one really big criticism you can make about the communists, is that there was a tendency to double down on failure. Part of that, I think, comes from the natural stubbornness one has to have by being in the political minority and loathed by everyone in power. You start from nothing and just keep trying until you make a breakthrough. And as you know from last week, the Guangzhou Uprising of December 1927 was not going to be that breakthrough. That first day of success the communists achieved during the uprising had only been due to Wang scrambling the military leadership in the area, creating enough confusion that an initial defense couldn't be mounted of the city. But then the units outside Guangzhou rolled in and totally mopped the floor with the communists. This was the capstone to the betrayal that put the communists on the defensive for a generation. A fun little side note is that this also wrecked Wang's last base of support. Now, without any power base whatsoever, and embarrassed that this all happened on his watch, Wang went into exile to Paris once again. Which, now that I think about it, I'm kind of envious. I wish I could be exiled every other year there, too. At the start of 1928, Chang had secured unprecedented power in China. The communists were driven underground, the Wuhan faction was gone, Wang was in exile, the NRA was behind him, and the northern warlords were in retreat. 
the KMT had largely subordinated itself to Cheng's leadership and the old sequence of importance with the party being first, then the bureaucracy, and then the army was inverted, with the party and the army switching places. Owing to the strain of war and instability, the dream of a civilian-dominated leadership was well and truly gone. And in the name of keeping the nationalist movement together and suppressing the communists, Chang's place as Generalissimo was now enhanced still further than what it had been when Sun Yat-sen had carried the same title. Under his guidance in the winter of 1928, the KMT reversed all remaining vestiges of communist influence. The movement's propaganda reverted back to the broader calls for a more basic kind of social justice that had dominated before Sun Yat-sen's alliance with the Soviets. Policy decisions influenced by the CPC or the disempowered left wing of the party were reversed. Those with ties that were considered too close to the left came under suspicion and were typically barred from influential positions or thrown out of the party outright. For peasants, their rents would be renegotiated something more manageable, but the gentry would keep their land holdings and hence the advantage of actual ownership. In the cities, workers' unions would allow labor to have a voice, but it would work through the nationalist authorities. They were not to disrupt the planned expansion of Chinese industry. The most important purpose of the party in this new order in China was to provide protection for the common man without damaging the greater society. This more moderate stance compared to the heated revolutionary rhetoric of the past few years was by and large accepted, at least initially, by the masses. This was by far the best deal they had been offered so far in this chaotic period, and at least here was a prospect of returning the country to some kind of order. And once that order had been achieved, it was hoped that the nationalists would then build the country up to where it would be strong enough to expel the foreigners who had become an intolerable embarrassment at this point. As you might imagine, the landholders, industrialists, and financiers were overjoyed that the Kuomintang was taking steps to protect their personal properties and investments with only partial concessions. It was still a revolution, just a liberal one, and much more in keeping with Sun Yat-sen's original vision. The focus was on reunifying the nation and getting it back to working order, which, to be fair, was a Herculean task by itself. Only once that dream had been achieved could the miseries besetting China be tackled, which was something the people went along with so long as those miseries were eventually tackled, which was a tricky thing as the people only had so much patience. But for now, Chang had solidified his hold of the movement and he was ready to go on the march once again. To meet him, Zheng Zhou-lin still had his Feng Tian army, battle-hardened after years of constant war but starting to show signs of wear and tear. He still had the political backing of the Japanese, but while they had provided air and naval support in earlier conflicts, they did not seem keen on making an open enemy of the faction set to be controlling the majority of China. He was attempting now to hold the flat plains of the northern core of the nation against the NRA at the peak of its powers during this period. At over two million men, this force was overwhelming compared to the remaining warlord troops. But it is worth remembering that after years of advances across China, that part of the KMT's strategy of success had been to flip various warlord armies and turn them over to the nationalist side. The big reason why the internal KMT conflicts were more vexing than the frontline military engagements was partially due to the KMT's warlord armies being just as unreliable as they had been before, at least once the solid core of the NRA had moved on. And this led to a critical downside that was going to haunt the KMT for the rest of its time leading China those turncoat warlords really never went away. No, they just fell under the banner of the nationalists and continued keeping a hold of their designated turf. Now, this state of affairs wasn't going to be quite as chaotic as it had been under the cliques. 
The legitimacy of the Kuomintang, at least in the early going of the Nationalist Triumph, meant that the greater movement would not break apart. But at the same time, the Johnny-come-lately commanders continued their old thinking in that they should be the principal authorities of their localities, and they should be the ones to oversee the modernization of their regions that the KMT was promising. Which, yeah, is the exact same problem that every central authority had faced so far, and Chang was going to find that he was no different from leaders past in facing the challenge of regional aspirations to autonomy. But I'm getting ahead of myself, and I bring this up mainly because Chang had to have known around this time that his challenges weren't going to end with the fall of Beijing, and also that this continued division made the paper strength of the NRA much greater than it actually was in the field. After all, that well-trained and battle-tested army that Chang had led from his southern bases originally still existed, but at the start was only a bit more than 100,000 men. And while his ranks certainly grew in the ensuing years, he couldn't just conjure specially trained soldiers from the ether. So most of these two million men about to descend on Beijing were much closer in quality than you'd find in your standard warlord army, mainly because they came from your standard warlord army. The final approach would come from multiple directions. Chang and the main force would strike northwards through the Shandong province en route to Beijing. Covering his left flank was Fang Yuzhang's own army, which had linked up with the main NRA force at the city of Zhuzhou back in December. And finally, I'm going to reintroduce a third faction here that I have been ignoring up to this point. This would be the warlord Yan Jishan, who was the commander of the Shangzi province. Now, if you look at the map, you will notice that the Shangzi province is especially close to Beijing, thus also pretty much adjacent to the center of the action. And despite being wedged dead center between Zhang and Fang, he had kept to his neutrality and barred either from passing through his land. He was the rare warlord who operated at that high a level who knew how to keep a low profile and not overextend himself. He usually would come out in support of one faction only after it was clear they were in the ascendant. This was mostly tolerated as he only backstabbed his fellows after it was clear they had already lost, so they didn't bear as much a grudge. It should be taken as a sign of which way the wind was definitively blowing now that he was openly siding with the nationalists. The advance started in April 1928, and I would like to report something other than overwhelming victory for the KMT, if only for entertainment's sake, but that's just not what happened. The Fengtian clique as a whole was kind of seeing the writing on the wall, and while Zhang was all for duking it out with Chang to the bitter end, the others in the faction's leadership really didn't see much of a point in doing so. The first round of fighting on this last stage of the campaign was notable for Sun Chuan Feng and his army making their last significant appearance, desperately counterattacking Chang's troops south of Jinan, the provincial capital of Shandong province, before finally being overwhelmed by the deluge of KMT troops. Their defeat left the way to the city wide open. It was here that something happened that really foreshadowed future events for China, the Jinan Incident. The Japanese had business interests all over Shandong, and had 2,000 citizens working in Jinan alone. They had certainly not forgotten the disturbances after the seizures of cities like Wuhan and Nanjing. The Japanese wanted the NRA to simply bypass the city, but Chang really wasn't going for it. If he was going to be China's liberator, he couldn't just go around major cities on foreign nations' request. So, the Japanese decided to send in 5,000 soldiers under one General Fukada to protect their interests in the province. They made a big public announcement beforehand thinking that being open and honest about the intervention would make it a little more palatable. 
They were, of course, wrong, and both the Nanjing and Beijing governments issued protests, which, given that Zhang was still a Japanese client, really gives you an idea of how unpopular the intervention was with the public. Zhang, for his part, played things close to the chest, and beyond the protest, he just informed his soldiers and the civilian population to more or less ignore the Japanese. They weren't there to specifically stop him, so, you know, just let them mill about, uh, just don't bother them or start any trouble. Uh, by April 30th, there were about 500 Japanese soldiers stationed in Jinan. They set up in the Japanese quarter of town and set up some barricades to mark out their turf. On May 2nd, the NRA arrived in Jinan, and Chang formally requested the Japanese soldiers leave. Getting the impression that the transition was going to be a lot less dramatic than in the cases of cities down south, the Japanese commander agreed and began organizing his troops to depart. But nationalistic tendencies could not be denied, and the mutual disregard that Chinese and Japanese soldiers had for each other got the better of both. Shooting broke out on May 3rd and escalated from there. Chang and Fukada first tried to get their troops under control, and Chang eventually withdrew most of his forces from the city, leaving only a policing force. Fukada, on the other hand, decided to blame everything on the Chinese soldiers and sent for reinforcements. On May 7th, these arrived, and Fukada issued an ultimatum. The Chinese officers in charge of the offending troops would be punished, the troops themselves involved would be disarmed by the Imperial Japanese Army, and the NRA would clear the area around Jinan. Chang really couldn't agree to this, especially coming from a general on the spot and not even the Japanese government itself. Plus, Fukada only gave him a 12-hour window, which only made it more impossible. You might think the Japanese were bluffing, as that kind of window seems pretty unreasonable, but as we are going to come to see time and time again, the leadership of the Japanese Empire really didn't set a high bar when it came to being reasonable. Fukada was most definitely not messing around. On May 8th, the Japanese army attacked Jinan and for three days tangled with the Chinese troops in the area. The NRA was forced to pull back and much of the city was damaged, leaving thousands dead. Chang had been trying to come to some understanding with the Japanese before this, and for many in the leadership of both the KMT and NRA, Japan was an attractive model to follow, and a revised partnership on more equal terms was a commendable long-term goal. But this entire incident ended all notions of that for good. Chang did everything in his power to temper the public's understandably explosive anger, as he could not afford to engage the Imperial Japanese Army head-on at this critical juncture. But this incident would set the tone for encounters to come. The incident, too, was a major source of concern for the Japanese government back home, as they sought an accommodation with the nationalists to preserve their influence in Manchuria. Zhang's troops around Beijing were not making a good showing of themselves, and with the factions rapidly being consolidated under one banner, their doors to influence within China were rapidly slamming shut. By late May, the NRA was preparing to assault Tianjin, which would isolate Beijing from Manchuria. The Fangtian officers started sending their families and possessions back to Manchuria in expectation of a nationalist victory. The Japanese fearing a repeat of the Jinan fiasco once the NRA troops reached Tianjin, preemptively demanded no Chinese soldiers approach the city proper. Behind the scenes, they also started putting the screws to Zheng and demanded that he give up a fight he clearly couldn't win and withdraw back to Manchuria. To secure his cooperation, they promised Zheng they would send in the Kuangtung army to help defend Manchuria if Cheng decided to invade, the Kuangtung army being the Japanese army of occupation in the parts of China they controlled. Zheng, being the hard-bitten bastard of an old mercenary he was, said no. 
he still wanted to fight. That really didn't go over well with his Japanese handlers, but events on the ground kind of made it a moot point. The Feng Tian were not performing any better as the NRA advanced closer to Tianjin, and Zhang himself was making a move out of Beijing. On June 3rd, the Nationalist forces entered the northern capital. In a meeting a couple days previous, it had been decided that Yan, the latest warlord added to the KMT ranks, would take responsibility for the city. Zhang wanted to avoid seeming too power-hungry to his allies in the Nationalist coalition. After all, he was seen as the leader, but not in a dictator sort of way just yet. Fang was kept off to the side as he was seen as too much of a potential rival to Chang, and given his long history of disobedience and backstabbing, could not be trusted with the responsibility. Zhang finally accepted reality and announced that he would, in fact, take part in making peace in the country from that point going forward. Unfortunately for him, the conciliatory attitude came too late. He left on his personal train and headed back to Manchuria, but outside the city of Mukden, the train hit a bomb on the rails, which killed him. The Kwangtung army had decided they didn't need the old marshal anymore and removed him from the picture permanently. It was an ignominious end to someone with the career he had, but them's the breaks when playing power politics in that era. It's important to note that it was the local Japanese officers that decided to do that. The civilian leadership back home was very interested in keeping him as an asset. Just remember that little distinction because it's just going to keep happening. The old marshal's son and heir apparent, Zhang Zhulang, now became leader of the Fangtian clique. Now, if you're dreading the idea of another prickly, stubborn old warlord entering the picture, uh, don't worry. Young Zhang was also a capable leader, but fairly different from his dear old dead dad. Whereas the old marshal was the classic scruffy military man, young Zhang was more a debonair type. Which isn't really to put him down. The young marshal had been on his dad's staff in pretty much every campaign so far. Probably his most important personality tick for us, though, is that Young Zhang was much more a committed Chinese nationalist. He really believed in making a powerful nation that could go toe-to-toe with the other world powers. This sentiment was probably reinforced pretty heavily by his dad being murdered by the Japanese and the creeping realization that they were going to interfere in an even more heavy-handed manner in Manchuria. For the KMT, though, they were finally victorious. They had reached the terminus of the northern expedition. All through June, troops and generals filed into the city as the Manchurian forces gradually, and thankfully peacefully, evacuated back north. The warlords might not have been totally gone, but the nation was for the moment almost united again. What did this all mean for China, though? Well, let's just say that even then the future was still considered uncertain. A primary goal of the KMT as a political party was to check the rise of militarism that had gripped and then quickly shattered the country. But now with the ascendancy of Chiang Kai-shek, the military arm of the nationalist movement clearly trumped the democratic supporters. And with the army firmly established as the primary source of power, the political wing of the KMT started to wither into irrelevance. For the people of China, disillusionment started to set in once it became obvious that the initial promises of democratic reforms started to be delayed indefinitely. The presence of numerous warlords under the KMT banner didn't help either, despite their proclamations of loyalty to Chiang's government. For his part, Chiang found himself the leader of the eastern part of China center to the Yangtze River. With power being based on the army, the south had steadily drifted away the farther the well-trained and loyal corps of the NRA had gotten from Guangzhou. To the north, Feng, Yan, and the younger Zhang all had their own armies and domains. The West was distant and, while not directly antagonistic, were also not great sources of support in reconstituting the nation. 
but by far the greatest problem facing Cheng going into the future was his own movement. He would have been loath to admit it, but the communists were absolutely vital in actually forging the KMT into a party worthy of a national movement. Before the alliance with the Soviets, it was a hodgepodge of idealists with a vague set of ideas advocating for national unity and democracy. Not exactly a deep platform there. The communists gave the KMT organization, discipline, and an ideology appealing to the masses of China. Before that, most political parties and factions focused on the upper and middle classes of Chinese society, despite them only constituting a small fraction of the population, even when combined. Most of the conservative and centrist parts of the KMT were wholly uninterested in mass engagement, preferring to work through the powerful and influential. It had been the left wing of the KMT and their communist allies that had worked to engage the hearts and minds of the common workers, and they were now gone. Now, that isn't to say there weren't some things to look forward to. Public works would be improved, services would be established, development and infrastructure in the economy would proceed. It is worth pointing out, though, that a lot of this being a gold star for the nationalists was because by the time they had come to power, the areas still held by the warlords had pretty much fallen apart. Cities had fallen into disrepair, schools were closed, and it had gotten to the point where society was breaking down which, given just how indifferent and callous the warlords had gotten, the KMT definitely offered the better deal. It's just that eventually people would aspire to more. That idea of a better deal leads us to yet another problem facing Chang as we wrap up China for this season. I've pointed out earlier that this time period was dominated by the nationalists, and that the CPC was relatively peripheral to the greater crisis about to descend on China. But Chang really, really didn't know that, and to him, the communist boogeyman was at the forefront of his mind. They were still out there, currently dispersed in bases across the South. They were scattered, but Chang knew that could change. Chang was many things, but being naive was not one of them. He leaned on his soldiers because he saw no other way forward to keep the party together. But at the same time, he knew that abandoning the democratic goals of the party in pursuit of a more authoritarian style of control really wasn't going to be a good PR move and would definitely do long-term damage to the nationalists' legitimacy. But Chang was a soldier, first and foremost, and was ill-suited to build a participatory government from the ground up. He was smart enough to know and regret this fact, but never was able to address it. He also knew that he would not be able to depend on the KMT as a political party either. Being eclipsed by the NRA meant it became a backwater, the ambitious and capable either went into the army or exploited a social connection to get directly into a government position, bypassing the party itself. Chang recognized and lamented this as well, as he realized that an ineffectual KMT would mean that popular sentiment would slip further out of his control, and he would become less capable of pushing his national vision. This goes back to the CPC being his boogeyman. They had no problems with the national narrative. They were all about engagement and outreach. Even in the shadows, the CPC pushed their message and sought to turn every sympathetic ear towards them. Just as the communists had created advanced parties for the NRA back in 1926, so too would they create new ones to one day act against the KMT. Chang understood the danger this presented. Not even deep down, but very close to the surface, Chang knew that the CPC wouldn't break, that it would keep struggling against him forever. And he also knew that he couldn't say the same for the NRA in its current state. It had grown ponderous in size and unreliable in its loyalty. His core troops and Wampoa officers were there for him, but what had become the rank and file in both the army and party was increasingly corrupt, 
and that against a determined opponent, they could snap. Chang now knew he faced a series of reckonings. As we get into the main narrative with China going into the next season, the nationalists will have to deal with their own splintered loyalties, the communists, the Japanese, and the devastated condition of China itself. It will come to be called the Nanjing Decade, a time when the nation strived to build itself up under a gathering storm of stresses and contradictions. If you figure the northern expedition would signal a time for peace in China, think again. The battles and crises would only get bigger in scope. But that's all for next season. For now, though, I'm going to wrap this section of China up with a pair of biography episodes starting next week. Both will explore the early life and rise to prominence of their respective subjects, Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong, the two men most influential to this era of China. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Music